All right, church, if you could get your Bibles open to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. Uh, If this is your first time here, uh, we are in the middle of a two-week series, or at the end of a two-week series. There can't be a middle for two. It's either one or two. Um, Of a two-week series that's dealing with an in-house issue. That's our church leadership structure, okay? So if you were coming here looking for like something to apply to your problems at work, uh, this might indirectly serve you, but it won't directly serve that need, okay? So I apologize for that. Um, uh, while you're turning there also, uh, I hear that there's, uh, uh, we, well, today's kind of been a, a mixture of all sorts of natural things, right? With, um, with the snow coming, right? It is coming down, and I see it, and I know you see it too, so you probably got me. All right, you got, you got 10 minutes, Scott. Um, <laughs> I'm from, I, I've driven in the north for five years, so it's going to be okay, I promise you. You'll be all right. Uh, I can drive you home if you need it. Uh, another thing, uh, daylight savings time happened last night, so how many of you hate losing an hour? So here's the debate real quick. Uh, show of hands, because you know the conversation is they want to do away with it, they just want to make something permanent, right? How many of you want something permanent? Show of hands. How many of you want to keep it the way it is, you lose an hour and you gain an hour? All right, so a house divided cannot stand. Luckily, we're not that divided, okay? I don't really care, but this sermon is not going to be about any of that. I was just curious to see how everybody felt because I know my senator's asking and I want to know. So anyways, because we're in a series right now called Shepherd and Serve the Flock Like Jesus, and, and we are rolling out a new church structure. It's not anything new, though. It's something that Scripture has been doing for generations of Christians, but it's new to this local body. And this is all in response to a proposal that was given to our church membership back in November for a plurality of church governance. So a lot of people think about church and they think about one pastor overseeing a flock and scripture just doesn't paint that picture. Last week we talked about that picture. We talked about a plurality of shepherds You may know them as elders, right? They are biblically qualified. They are scripturally, spiritually gifted. And then they're tasked with, they're responsible for things like, in short, vision and doctrine and spiritual care and equipping for this local body. And I presented to you some who would be appointed to that, and you're considering them this month. But we're not done yet with that. We're not done with our understanding of church structure and leadership there. Scripture continues to demonstrate a few more elements in in this. And Jesus himself clearly demonstrates a few elements in this and in his own life and in his ministry, especially whenever we understand some of the things Jesus was very passionate about and some of the culture that he was trying to implement into the life of his kingdom and its citizens. So I'm not going to go through the whole story that's found in John 13, but you guys remember the story about how Jesus washed his disciples' feet? You remember that? And how scandalous that is? Peter protested, right? He's like, you're not going to wash my feet. You know why? Because washing people's feet was, wasn't even reserved for, for the, the students of rabbis. It was reserved for the slaves, like the least of people. Like, you don't, you don't do that. That's something for the, the worst kind of people. Let them handle that. And yet here Jesus is stooping down low to wash people's feet. And this sets an example for us. He actually goes on to explain this in, in the passage. And I'll actually just throw it up on the screen for you if I can get it up there. It says this in John 13. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So in that example, in those comparisons at the bottom, who is what? Are we the messenger or the sender? We're the messenger. Are we the servant or the master? The servant. We're not greater than Jesus. And here Jesus is tending to one of the most practical, disgusting needs among his disciples. Which means to follow Jesus means that you and I need to be willing to take care of other people's needs regardless of how uh, disgusting it might be. Amen. Right? Or culturally weird, might I add. But you see, this story about Jesus washing disciples' feet, it's not anything new. It's not like, hey, here's something new for you right before he dies. No, no, it's something that he's been telling them all along. You can see in Mark chapter 10, his disciples, they were there complaining about who's going to be greater in the kingdom. This is what Jesus says. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. In other words, in my kingdom, in my citizenship, it won't be that way. Here's how it will be. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be slave, oh, slave of all. For even if the Son of Man did not come to be served, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, there was to be no leadership position in the kingdom of God that lords the authority over anyone else. But to be any kind of great in the kingdom of God means you stoop to the lowest place of service. Even if it means washing feet. You know, Jesus said something in Luke 17 that, that I have just continued to be like, I really like that. It's not culturally fun. It doesn't really do well for me, but I really like that. And I'm, I'm going to start taking that on. I like this. You know what he said? He was talking about the relationship between a master and a slave. And this is how he ends that. He says, in the same way, talking to his disciples, when you have done all that you've been commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. He's talking about us as disciples obeying his commands. Oh, Jesus, we're just unworthy servants, and we're just doing what you've tasked us with. See, I like that. I don't know if you like that. Some of you are like, oh, I don't like calling myself unworthy because I, I, I'm royalty before the Lord. I wear purple all day, right? <laughs> no, this is Jesus saying this is, this is part of our identity, unworthy servant, this is who we are in his citizenship, in his kingdom, right? Serving one another, that's part of the norm in the kingdom of God. Putting others' interests above your own, oh, that's, that's the kingdom right there. You want to know why? Because that comes from Philippians 2. And if you can remember Philippians 2, the command is to have this mindset among you. Put your, uh, others' interests above your own. Why? Because that's exactly what Christ did. He didn't consider his own glory something to hold on to, something to plunder, but he put it aside. He took on our image, took on human flesh, and he went to the cross. You see, the cross is the greatest act of service the world has ever documented or known. 
Jesus' death is the greatest service anybody has been receiving. So service, serving one another, is part of Jesus' message and it is example. And not only that, but it becomes part of the norm in the New Testament church, right? When you're, when you're reading through the book of Acts, you just see it all over the place. And it might make you uncomfortable and it might challenge you with some of your own wealth, right? When you're thinking about Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter preaches this message, a lot of people are convicted, they're, they're saved, they're baptized, and then this church, this organic thing just starts forming called a church. And this is what happens in it. If you look at chapter 2, verse 44 through 45, it's up on the screen. Now all those believers were together and held all things in common. In other words, your stuff's my stuff and my stuff is your stuff. They sold their possessions and their property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had what? Need. Oh, doesn't that make you be like, but I like my stuff. We keep going. You can see in the book of Galatians, when Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, he says, bear one another's burdens or carry one another's burdens. And in doing that, you fulfill the law of Christ. You remember, love God and love people. That summarizes the whole law. Carrying part of other people's burdens is inherent to our mission to love God and to love people. You see somebody getting crushed down by a weight that they can't hold up under? You go up and you take some of the weight. Yes, that means you have to take some of the weight. Peter keeps going in his own letter, his first letter, in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, just as each one of you has received a gift, use it to what? Serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Serving the needs, the practical needs of others, is one of the most basic cultural norms in the kingdom of God. You see... Jesus' flock doesn't just need shepherding, it needs serving. That's part of who we are as kingdom people. And scripture seems to show that a local church's leadership structure wasn't just to be made up of overseeing shepherds, but scripture seems to also indicate that there was to be individuals appointed to the task of serving. And scripture seemed to call them these things like deacons. How many of you are familiar with the word deacon? And I'm not talking about the Wake Forest demon deacons. By the way, I don't even know where they got that name from. It is terrifying that they came up with that. Hey, we're going to take a church thing and put demons on front of it. <laughs> right? That's, that's, I'm, I'm from Raleigh, so I get to make fun of Wake Forest. Uh, my dad even went to school there for a little bit. So anyways, deacons, right? You kind of know him. My dad was one growing up in the church that I went to growing up, and, and actually he is appointed to one now. He's a, a deacon in a church. The word deacon is what's called a transliterated word, uh, kind of like baptism, right? Baptism wasn't an English word per se. It was the Greek word baptizo. You want to say baptizo? Well done. You even see the inflection. That was great. The Greek word for deacon is diakonos, diakonos, and actually I can put that up there for you, I got, I got it for you, diakonos, and, and it's a noun, and you know what it literally means? Servant, or minister. 
While we are all, of course, to be serving one another's needs, there's not a limit to that in the kingdom of God as Jesus has commanded. Scripture does seem to indicate that there were individuals within a local church appointed to positions in the church leadership structure specifically to take on the care and the fulfillment of practical needs in the flock. So, for example, you can kind of see that in Philippians 1 when Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he addresses the overseers and the deacons. You can see it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that's who it's from, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Okay. Not only that, but we see later on in 1 Timothy 3 when Paul starts describing the qualifications of those elders. Right after that, he says, and deacons likewise. Then he lists out more qualifications. Guys, church leadership is supposed to be made up of these shepherds and these servants, or you may have heard them as elders and deacons. So here, because of church polity, we're part of denomination, blah, blah, blah. We've got shepherds and servants is what we're referring to them as. So as I talk about servants, you might think deacon, right? As I talk about shepherds, you might think elder, but just we're using the language of shepherds and servants. Just keep up with that, okay? So shepherds, in Scripture are given a ton of clarity on what they're supposed to be doing, right? We saw the text last week. We saw other passages last week. When it comes to deacons, you know what's really funny? Scripture says no list of responsibilities that they're supposed to be doing. It gives no clarity, no commands, no charge. It doesn't give a list like a, like a nice little, like, like, like a to-do list like I want just doesn't do that. Just simply gives the name servant. So you think that their task then just comes from their name, serve. Your task, serve. Now you might, could think that, well, local churches are all unique and every local church might have a, a, a unique set of practical needs. So scripture doesn't command deacons to be just doing this when a local church might not have some widows that they need to be tending to. Another local church might not even have a building that they need to be responsible for. You see, all the needs can be very different, so Scripture doesn't seem to be very strict with what deacons can do. It offers up freedom with what we can be doing with our servants and what they can be doing. But our main passage today, which you're probably thinking, wow, it's about time you got here. If that's going to show how long you're going to go, Scott, this is going to be bad. Acts chapter 6 actually is probably, I would say, the, the clearest and most helpful example of what it looks like for shepherds and servants to be in a local body and how vital it is to have them for a church's health. So let me just give you some context. Church is booming in the book of Acts. Things are happening. People are being saved. The church is growing, right? And we're in Acts, if you're like in Acts 5, the apostles have been arrested because they've been preaching and healing. And, and some of them have been arrested, sorry about two. And then, and then they're flogged and they're said, hey, don't go preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And the apostles are like, nah, we'll keep doing it. Right? And so they keep doing it, and if you look at verse uh, 42 of chapter 5, or sorry, um, yeah, 42 of chapter 5, every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so they're just keeping on doing good ministry. Church is happening in the New Testament here. And then we get to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. 
This is what it says. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. And they, and they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church is growing. People are getting baptized. Disciples are increasing in number. And as this is happening, a problem comes up in the church. Not outside of the church, within the church. And what's the problem? Well, the problem has to deal with an ethnic division. Now, at this point, some might wander off into exclaiming this is the first case of racism in the church. Uh, I would, I would say that that's not the case because if it was a race issue, the apostles wouldn't have addressed it in a practical way. They would have addressed it in a theological way. They would have said, the gospel rids us of racial division. You need to reconcile this and correct it. But this doesn't seem to be an issue of racism. We're not gonna read into the text what's not simply there. Simply put though, we do have the Hellenistic Jews, which are Greek-speaking Jews and they're clearly saved. They're clearly a part of the New Testament church. But their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution. Guys, I don't know how many times I could tell you how often it happens when someone just accidentally gets overlooked in church. And I know it can hurt. There's an explanation for that, and I'll get to it at the end. But the widows are getting neglected in the distribution of food. And even there, you see the distribution of food is a very practical need happening in the body of Christ, being taken care of in the body of Christ. Those widows being cared for by the flock. So the church would come together, put some meals together, and give it to the widows. But some were being looked over. Guys, I, while this might not be a case of racism, I would say that very clearly it's the first case of church hurt ever recorded. Right? If you don't know what church hurt is, don't look it up. It's not worth it. Just a real quick thing. Do y'all expect this local church to be perfect in all of its ways? If you shook your head yes, then I think we need to go back to the gospel because this church is a hospital for sinners, not a mausoleum of saints. Right? We will get things wrong. There will be ways we have, we have messed up and will continue to mess up. But the point isn't that we're stuck in it. We will repent and we will move forward by God's grace. But guys, the reality is church can at times be messy because the church is made up of messy people, including myself. We can mess up. So, so there's this problem and the, the church in the New Testament comes up with this solution, right? What's the, what's the solution they give? 
oh, well, no, 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 hey, there's this need. Let the apostles take care of it. They're the ones Jesus is appointed to to care for the church. Just, I mean, they're, they're getting paid. They're making money off of it. Just let them take care of the need. Is that what they do? No, no, no. You see, doing that would present another problem. The 12 apostles call the church together. Look at verse 2, what they say, what would happen if they were to take it on. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. For them to use their time to serve tables, literally the Greek word there is diakoneo, serving tables, if they were to use their time doing that, that would mean that they wouldn't be using their time in the service of preaching God's word. If you look on in verse four, look at what they do. They say, but you do this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, the diakonia, the service of the word. So guys, here's the thing. It's not as if they think serving tables is beneath them. It's not as if, oh, we're the, we're the elite of the church. That's below us. No, serving tables is, is, is a service as much as preaching God's word is a service to the flock. And they're the ones who have been tasked by God to do it, to preach, to teach, and to shepherd, to serve the church the word. And in verse 3, we see the establishment Instead of appointing it to the apostles, taking that need and saying, well, the church apostles need to do it, the elders, the shepherds need to be doing it. No, instead of doing that, the apostles present another solution, and they offer up a solution in the sense that they're appointing individuals to the specific task and work in the life of the body. Their solution was to task the church to look among themselves for seven who can be appointed to this need which already shows the nature of the work of servants. Serve tables so widows can eat. How basic can it get of a need? Serve very practical needs within the flock. Now notice how this isn't a position of authority. It's not responsible for teaching or for preaching or any kind of vision. It's just simply serve. They, they assist the overseers. They start to organize practical service. They care for the needy. They protect the unity in the church because this problem was dividing the church. Deacons serve to protect the unity of it. And then they mobilize the ministry and so much more. And as they're taking care of these needs, what they're doing is they're, they're guarding, they're protecting the ministry of the word so that it can continue to go out. And so that's what we see in the nature of the work of these servants, serving tables as basic as it gets. So they're tasked with finding seven, but not just any seven, right? The 12 apostles give specific conditions or qualifications for who the church should be looking for. Look at verse three. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this need. These servants had to have specific character traits. Three are given here. First, they've got to have a good reputation. They've got to be well-known, godly. Secondly, they need to be full of the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit filling them. Thirdly, they need to be full of wisdom. 
Now, the Apostle Paul later on gives more clarification for the qualifications of servants in his letter to Timothy. I'm not going to tell you to turn to the passage. I'm just going to give you the simple list from 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 12. And this is what it says. First, they need to be dignified. In other words, honorable, respectable, esteemed. They need to not be double-tongued. In other words, they don't say one thing one way and say it a different way to another person. They need to have sincerity in how they speak, with whom they speak always. They need to not be addicted to much wine. In other words, they're not controlled by alcohol or any drugs or anything. Additionally, they're not greedy for dishonest gain. They don't need the money. Sound in faith and life. In other words, the, the need for these servants, they've got to hold true to the gospel. Their behavior has to align with their convictions. They need to be blameless. In other words, their moral, their spiritual, their doctrinal maturity is what's being considered along with a track record of service in the church. They also need to be a husband of one wife or more literally a one-woman man. It's all their heart delights in if the Lord's given them one. And finally, they need to manage children and households well. In other words, this person's a loving and responsible spiritual leader in the home. Now, I am going to also let you know that what I'm about to say might be controversial in some regards. But Paul, in his passage in 1 Timothy 3, starts also describing qualifications for women. Now, some interpret those qualifications to be the wives of the male deacons or the male servants. But if you were to just kind of take a look at it logically, you could ask the question, well, why do deacons' wives have qualifications on themselves and shepherding wives don't? That doesn't make sense. In fact, the word wives is actually read into the text. It's not actually there. The easiest conclusion is simply that he's writing about female servants or female deacons. In fact, we see in Scripture that there was a female deacon written in Romans 16. One, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, in other words, diakonos, of the church in Centuria. So I'm just going to go on that. Simply put, there are, there are qualifications for female uh, servants given to. They need to be dignified, just like the male servants. The female servants need to be respectable in the community. They're not slanderers. In other words, they're not a person who just goes around spreading gossip. They're sober-minded. In other words, they need to be able to make good judgments about things. And they're faithful in all things. In other words, they're similar to like above-approached and they're blameless. So just, again, I want you to take note of these qualifications. Did this list anything that they could do? No. It listed who they are. Their character, all about what they are inside. Another thing, just a real quick note. Uh, did you notice that the list for men included that they shouldn't be uh, addicted to much wine? And the women's list did not. So does that mean that women can be addicted to much wine, but men can't? No, of course not. Those are just good qualifications for all people, right? Right? These are good qualities for all of us to possess. So let's get back to our story in Acts 6. We're back here. The apostles propose, choose seven, find seven from among you. It pleases the church, and so they get to work. They start to search within their own ranks for these kinds of qualifications. Look at verse 5 and 6. 
So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and five more, and I skipped their names because they're kind of hard to pronounce, a convert from Antioch, and they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And then what happens next is these seven are prayerfully commissioned by the apostles to the administration of the needs. Here's what's funny. We hear nothing else in Scripture about the last five mentioned. Of the seven, we only hear more about two. Stephen and Philip. And I'll tell you what. Them some movers and shakers in the kingdom of God. If you were to keep reading chapter 6, chapter 6, 7, and 8 would tell you all about Stephen and his life and ministry in the church. Verse 8 of chapter 6 says that Stephen was a man full of grace and power, and he's performing great signs and wonders among the people. Jewish opposition starts rising up against him. He gets taken to trial. Uh, They can't stand against his wisdom and the spirit that's in him. He gets taken to trial. He preaches the longest sermon that Acts ever records spanning all the way from Abraham to Jesus. He calls them out. He calls them stiff-necked people, always rebelling against the Holy Spirit. The court gets enraged. They close their ears. They charge at him. They drag him out of the city, and they stone him to death. Now, those of you who are uh, interested in being a servant in our church, uh, this doesn't sound too fun, does it? Philip, sorry, Stephen's death is him being the first true martyr for Christ. And his death actually rose up a persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and it dispersed the Christians with the gospel all over the area. And the gospel went forth on the back of Stephen's death. Then there's Philip, right? Philip, he gets scattered with that persecution. We're in Acts 8 now. So he just goes on to Samaria. He's like, oh, I'm I'm away from home. I guess I'll preach the gospel here in Samaria. So he evangelizes there. Scripture says that Philip did powerful signs and wonders. He gets a message delivered to him by an angel from God to go south. So he goes south on a road back towards the persecution. And on his way, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 26. This guy's reading the book of Isaiah, so Philip's like, hey, I can use that. So he preaches the gospel. He baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and guess what happens next? Uh, Like a Holy Spirit claw comes on Philip, picks him up out of the water, and it says he was carried away to Azotus. Like, come on! Once he was there, he starts traveling around and preaching the gospel. At the end of Acts, in chapter 21, verse 8, Philip is nicknamed the evangelist. These are servants in the church, and they're instrumental to the movement of the gospel and the ministry of the church as they serve tables. Now, we're not done with our text yet. If you thought so, I'm sorry. This problem gets presented. A solution is offered, and it is implemented. Is that the end of the story? No. The author of the book of Acts makes sure that you and I know we take note of what happens when this sort of life and structure gets implemented into the leadership culture of the church. Look at verse 7. When this happened, the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Guys, the gospel, the word of God starts getting out to all new places. Great numbers of people in Jerusalem start following Jesus. And look at who comes to faith. Priests. 
You know, those people who seem the most unlikely to come to faith in Christ, they're the ones that God's going after. They become obedient to the faith. So when everyone starts playing their part, shepherds shepherding, servants serving, widows eating, gospel-centered, kingdom-advancing ministry happens. Guys, I think it is absolutely vital that we get this right. There's this quote from an essay that I was reading on, on deacons this week from the Gospel Coalition. It says this, A church without effective deacons or servants may exhibit signs of health for a while, but over time its health will suffer. We rob ourselves of the benefits of God's revealed wisdom when we either unduly elevate the role of deacons. In other words, they become like pseudo-elders. They're the ones who are shepherding flocks. They're the ones who are going to visit homes. When, when deacons take that role, shepherds become too distant from the flock. And no, shepherds were not supposed to be distant from the flock. They were supposed to work in tandem with deacons in the flock. So we could elevate deacons to become shepherds, but that's not the case. Or we could unduly reduce their role. In other words, they're the ones who are glorified janitors. When, the leak, when there's a leak in the bathroom, they're the ones we call always, right? No, that's not what it simply is. Biblically understood, deacons are a cavalry of servants deputized to execute the elders' vision by coordinating various ministries. When deacons flourish, the whole congregation wins. I'm just curious, can you see how vital it is that we get something like this right? Can you see how much like, closer we'll be able to get to Jesus' original design for the life and the culture of his flock? To not just shepherd, but to serve. To serve those who are sick in prayer, to serve those in need with providing food, to get cars fixed who can't, for those who can't afford it, to clean up the leaves of the elderly and the disabled, to help take those who can't get to their doctor's appointments to their doctor's appointments, or to pick up others who can't get to church to bring them to church, to help people move into their new home or paint <laughs> their nursery or to wash one another's feet to serve one another like Jesus so just like last week the, the real way that we can apply this this conviction this understanding of God's word when it comes to church and our leadership structure to apply this, we have to appoint servants. So today I'm going to be presenting to you nominees who will be considered for appointment to Waynesboro FM Church's first ever servant team. Now, of course, I just want to remind you again, these aren't the only ones who are going to be serving in our church. All right? All of you are tasked with that. I could just, we could just start talking again about it if we want, right? No, these are going to be individuals who are taking charge to ensure that most practical needs within our church are being met with mercy and benevolence. And they will need our help. So these individuals, I believe, well, first off, they have to be qualified, as you've heard. They also need to be tasked with the things similar to the nature of what you've heard. 
And when you do this, when we do this as a church, you're going to protect the ministry of the word. You're going to protect the ministry of shepherds. So these individuals that I'm presenting to you, I've gotten to know in the last two and a half years, and and I do believe that they are qualified and have a track record of humble service. I want to remind you again that these individuals did not seek me out. In fact, I don't even think they knew that they were going to be asked for this a week ago. They found out this week. I'm the one who called them. It's like, hey, so I'm a little bit behind. But they've responded with grace. And they have a track record of humble service. So the following individuals I'm going to be presenting to you are for your consideration to be appointed as servants to the servant team. I will call their names one by one and they will come forward. First, you saw him last week, Dale Crosby. Dale Crosby is dueling as shepherd and servant, being on the shepherd team, leading the servant team. Additionally, we have Wanda Crosby, Dale's wife. We have Nelson Frazier, if you would come forward. We have John Gould. We have Jeff Walter and his wife, Renee Walter. We have Debbie Simpson. We have David Ashby. Now, understanding that sometimes serving the church looks like leading the church because Jesus demonstrated servant leadership, we also have our worship minister, worship servant, Luke Twombly. If you would come forward. Let me come in front of you guys. I don't like talking to the back of your heads. It looks ridiculous. So uh, to all of you, first off, thank you for considering this. I do have some initiating questions to ask you to ensure that this is happening before the flock First question, do you aspire to the noble work of the role of servant among this flock? As Scripture indicates, are you willing to take charge of coordinating the fulfillment of the practical needs within this precious flock of Jesus? Last question, are you willing to enter into a season of cross-examination, allowing for your reputation from the flock to come to bear on this process of appointment? All right, so church family, you guys are now asked to take on the task of going before the Lord and prayerfully considering these individuals. Uh, If you have any biblical reasons why any of these individuals might be disqualified, whether, like, you know, they got some skeletons in the closet, right? They're, They're trying to actively sweep under the rug some of their bad habits, and you just know about it, right? Any of these individuals, if you have reason or concern about them serving in this role, please don't write me an anonymous letter. That goes right in the trash, right? Don't write me an email. Come talk to me face to face. I want to talk to you, and I'd love to hear you. I'd love to hear your concerns. And at the end of this month, on March 26, we will bring forward our shepherd team and our servant team. And, and pending this evaluation process and this time of cross-examination, we will prayerfully commission these individuals into their assigned roles. So your task Go before, the God, go before God in these next few weeks. We have until March 26th to figure this out. Come meet with me if you have concern. So at this time, you guys can be seated. Thank you. 
while they're being seated, I want to just talk to those real quick who uh, maybe you're a current member, maybe you aspire to be a shepherd or a servant, and, and you believe you're qualified and you're gifted in those ways, you've got a good track record with that, but you're wondering, why on earth wasn't I asked? Remember how I talked about church hurt? There's an easy answer for that. Why weren't you asked? Uh, how's the song go? I'm only human. Guys, I'm not God. I don't get everything right. I mess up along the way. I, 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 I don't know the things that I don't know. That's the truth. And so if you do have any kind of inspiration or aspiration to serve in any of these roles and you are currently a member of our church, please come let me know. We want to enter into this process. This isn't the only time that we're going to be doing anything like this. As the Lord draws more and more people to himself, Lord willing, these teams will have to grow. And I believe they will. Now for those of you who aren't members and you aspire to these things, uh, become a member. Go ahead and get that done. Check that box. But what I want to do now is just close in prayer for our church family because this is a pivotal shift in the culture of our church and sometimes change just isn't easy. So I want to pray for God's grace. Father, we thank you that your word really has given us a good design for how church is supposed to look. And the fact that you would even entrust the care of your flock to carbon-based units like human beings, like me, like I, it's astounding and terrifying and yet you've done that and we thank you for giving us your holy spirit to empower and to equip along the way but god as this church is experiencing something new in the last two months some decently big changes to the culture of our church and the structure of this church god i pray that you would tend to those who are having a difficult time with this God, I'm not just trying to say that that you would just change their mind and make it easier. But I pray, God, that they would seek you with these pains, with these troubles, these troubles. And God, I pray that you would meet with them with your word. You would show them in scripture what is true. If I am in error, show me what is true, God. Would you help us as we seek to follow your design for what this church is to be? We need your help in every way. Because this church is so precious. You care so much about this flock. May we steward it well, God. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. So if you would stand, I want to close out with praying a prayer of benediction over you. But as you're standing, I want to remind you, first off, if you need prayer or care, we're going to have some individuals up here ready to pray for you. So please come up front. I would also uh, remind you that we have refreshments out here so that you don't have to wander off, however, with the snow. I don't see the roads getting too bad at all, so you can hang around if you want. Uh, But if you feel like you need to go, dine and dash. Um, Lastly, just real quick, the interest meeting for the Easter fair. If you want to participate in that at all, we, uh, I don't like talking about it. We need your help to do it. Here's an opportunity for you to serve. You want to do it? 
If so, hang around in the, in, the, in, the, in the sanctuary after. Jen will meet with you. But here's the prayer of benediction that I, I felt led to pray over you as we close. Now, uh, from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Be safe.